I'm Andy Duffett and a warm welcome from your team here at the Bone and Joint Journal. As some of you may know, for the months of June and July, we have released an overview podcast to accompany our supplements from the American Hip and Knee Society for those meetings. For the month of July, we've already had a podcast with our editor-in-chief here at the Journal, Professor Faris Adad, and the guest editor for the July Knee Supplement, Dr. Brian Springer, where we hope to have provided you with a brief overview of the Knee Society, who the members are, as well as discussing how this collaboration came about and how it will benefit you as our listeners and readers. We also hope to have provided you a behind-the-scenes insight into how the studies within the supplement have been chosen, as well as been given a brief discussion about papers. With that in mind, over the next 15 to 20 minutes or so, we will be discussing in more detail one of the prize papers from the American Knee Society closed meeting in 2018, which was published in this month's supplement. As with previous BJJ podcasts, we do utilize the invaluable insight of our guest interviewers for select papers. So today I have the pleasure of welcoming back for a second time our guest interviewer, Ian Murray, who is my colleague here in Edinburgh, and also our associate editor for Knowledge Translation here at the BJJ. Welcome Ian, and thank you so much for joining us. Thanks Andrew, pleasure to be here. Ian and I have a real privilege today of being joined by two authors from the paper entitled A Multicenter Randomized Clinical Trial of Transamic Acid and Revision Total Knee Arthroplasty." Does the Dosing Regimen Matter, which was the winner of the Mark Coventry Award from the Knee Society and will be published in the July supplement. Firstly, I'd like to introduce the senior author for the study, Dr. Craig Delavalle, who is Professor of Orthopaedic Surgery and Chief of the Division of uh, Adult Reconstruction at Rush University Medical Center. Welcome, Dr. Delavalle, and a big thank you for taking the time to join us. Thank you. Uh, fun to be here and appreciate the opportunity to talk about our study. Great. We're also joined by Dr. Avalis co-author, Dr. Yale Fillingham, who is an orthopedic surgeon in Lebanon, New Hampshire, and the lead author for the paper. Welcome, Dr. Fillingham, and likewise, thank you so much for taking the time to join us to discuss your study. Yeah, no, thank you for hosting us. This is great. So, without further ado, I will hand over to you. Thanks, Andrew. No, we're absolutely delighted to have you both uh, with us today. So, Dr. Delavalli, if we perhaps start with you, we know that blood management and conservation in joint arthroplasty has come a long way in the last four decades. I think it would be very helpful for our listeners if you could outline how you feel we have moved from a time when transfusion rates were as high as 30% to where we are now. Yeah, you know, it's really, um, it's been pretty amazing to watch. And I think it's a real testament to how we as adult reconstruction surgeons uh, have embraced change to improve quality care for our patients. Um, so I'm 49, so I did my residency training just about 20 years ago. And, uh, you know, when I started residency, we would spend, you know, half of our day on the weekends checking hemoglobin levels and then calling the attending surgeons, you know, to find out if they wanted patients to get blood. And it was like, you know, literally like half your day on call on the weekend was, was worrying about blood management. And, uh, you know, went from there to having patients auto-donate blood. And uh, I think for a lot of us, things really changed at the American Association of Hip and Knee Surgeons meeting. It was about 10 years ago. I can't remember the exact date. But I remember John Callahan was moderating the session. And there was uh, uh, Brian McGrory, uh, who's an orthopedic surgeon in Maine, had brought in uh, the person who worked at his blood bank. And the two things that they talked about were tranexamic acid, as well as, you know, rethinking transfusion triggers. I think that really spawned, uh, you know, a huge change, along with some work that was quite being done at the Mayo Clinic, Mark Pagnano, at about the same time. It really changed uh, our views on, on blood management really tremendously. And at this point, you know, 
uh, it's rare, I mean, extremely rare, that we transfuse uh, someone who has a primary total joint replacement unless they're really starting with a hemoglobin level that's less than 10, which hopefully we can avoid in many patients by identifying that preoperatively and hopefully optimizing it beforehand. Yeah. Well, that's also our experience over here. And how was um, the, the news of Tranazamic received from the, um, from the community? Were there concerns about safety? And, and, and how has that been uh, dealt with and, and, and moved forward? Yeah, so that, that's a great question. You know, there's a, there's a couple things there. You know, the, it was really funny. You know, I brought this data back to my institution. And, uh, you know, the way that hospitals, at least in the U.S., are set up, you know, the pharmacy was like, you know, this is going to kill us. This is going to cost us so much money. And I was like, uh, but it's going to save everybody else, you know, a lot of money. And it's going to do a lot of good for a lot of people, um, you know, obviously avoiding transfusions and all the problems related to them. And it was just a lot of resistance. I mean, literally, you know, at an academic institution in the United States where you figured you'd have uh, enlightened souls, you know, kind of looking at stuff and looking at data and say, hey, you know, there's a bunch of data that suggests this stuff works. There was, there was a real lot of resistance from it. Um, not only did we get resistance on a financial level, but there was, uh, as you had suggested, a lot of safety concerns that all of a sudden, you know, we were going to be causing thromboembolic events in all of our patients and encouraging that. And... Uh, well, I think there was a lot of misunderstanding on how the drug works, and basically that the drug, you know, um, doesn't cause blood clots. It prevents clots from being broken down. Um, and again, I think there are, like a lot of things in medicine, just a lot of assumptions about who should and who shouldn't get this medication. I think that the other big um, issue we had was with our anesthesia colleagues, um, and frankly, nursing. You know, just again, I think well, well placed, but a lot of concerns about causing harm with this drug and who should and who shouldn't it, shouldn't be getting it. And I think I was at the, um, the American Academy of Orthopedic Surgeons meeting. It was probably four years ago. And I had a, someone walk up to me who I really didn't know. and said, hey, you know, a, you're Craig, right? And I said, yeah, I'm Craig. And he said, uh, you know, you're involved with AUKUS. I said, yeah, you know, sure, involved with AUKUS. What can I help with? And at that point, I just entered the president's line. And he said, you know, AUKUS should really come up with a position statement on the use of tranexamic acid because we're meeting a lot of resistance. I want to use it for most of my patients. I think it's safe for most of my patients to get. But we're really getting a lot of resistance from, you know, from colleagues within the hospital. Can you help us with that? And, uh, and I thought that it was something that AUKUS could really do uh, in a way to scientifically kind of come out with some recommendations on what is the efficacy of this drug? What is the safety of this drug? Who should get it? Who shouldn't get it? Kind of what are the risks and benefits? Yeah. And yourself and Dr. Billingham, who's joined up, who's with us today, were involved in, I think, bringing a few of the societies together to, in the development of the guidelines in the Journal of Arthroplasty last year. That must have been a challenge, bringing all those groups together. How did that come about? Um, <laughs> you know, to be honest with you, it was, it was quite a bit easier than I expected. I think there was a lot of appetite among, again, I guess, learned souls that, um, you know, that this drug is a drug that's helpful and that it probably could be used more widely. And uh, yeah, people really embraced the concept of working together on it. It was very refreshing that, that people were willing to, to work together, again, just to kind of share with people what, what data suggests and what's kind of, uh, what's the right word, fantasy 
or, you know, what's urban legend, um, you know, kind of what's fact and what's myth. And yeah. uh, again, it was refreshing and fun to work on. And, you know, Yale really was instrumental in, in making that whole thing happen. Well, that's great to hear. And um, coming to yourself then, Dr. Fillingham, could you tell us about how this particular study came about? So I think that the, the catalyst for this study came from the recognition that we, we had a robust amount of literature on TXA and primary tunnel jar arthroplasty, but we, we really kind of lacked any significant literature on revisions. In, in fact, actually, when we were going through the IRB process for this, we had a big roadblock from our IRB because the VA's practice guidelines on the use of TXA actually recommends against the use of it or couldn't recommend the use of it in revisions because of the lack of literature, but would support its use in primary. Kind of odd, right? We've got a drug that helps prevent blood loss and you're saying that you can use it in, this, in the procedures that have less blood loss, but not in the procedures that have more blood loss. So I think that that really kind of helped highlight that although we had a lot of literature in the primaries and we knew that it was an effective drug, uh, there was still some roadblocks to possibly getting it more broadly used in revisions. Uh, plus, it, this study was kind of one of those holy grail studies whereby regardless of what we found statistically or non-statistical differences, you have something that's a meaningful outcome. So for instance, if we found no difference, then we know that we can actually kind of reduce the number of doses that we're giving patients, re, uh, give them less drug, which is always a nice thing, and then also reduce the cost of, the, of utilizing that drug. But if we found a difference, then it actually we'd be doing something where we, we could find out that we were maybe underdosing these revision uh, patients and we needed to increase the dose, which would have a, a positive effect of reducing blood loss and transfusion. Great, that's very helpful. And for those of those listeners who haven't yet come to read the article, I'm sure everyone will, um, could you give them an overview of, of how the study was set up and the question that you were specifically asking? Right, so we set this up as a six-center, multi-center uh, RCT. So we were trying to compare four treatment groups. Those treatment groups included a single dose of IVTXA, which was a one-gram dose uh, before incision. The second group was a double dose of IVTXA, where they got one dose at the same time preoperatively, and then a second dose around the time of closure. And then the third group was the combined IV topical. Uh, that was where they got the, the one dose of IVTXA uh, preoperatively, and then they got intra, an intraarticular injection at the, after they had closed their arthrotomy, but before skin had been closed. And then the, the third group, or sorry, the fourth group was uh, the multi-dose uh, oral TXA. So they got approximately a two gram dose. Um, so 1,950 milligrams about two hours before surgery. And then they got it uh, six hours post-op and then the, the morning of post-operative day one. So we were comparing those four groups together and I think that one of the big challenges that you have in a revision, when we're looking at revisions, is how do you take something that's an incredibly heterogeneous mix, right? I think everybody would agree that a uh, both component revision is very different from a single component revision um, and different from a space, an explant and spacer, 
uh, type procedure. So what we did was we had each site have their own randomization chart for each type of procedure so that we could kind of ensure that there was an there was an equitable distribution of all of these different procedures in each treatment group to hopefully not have one treatment group have a ton of two components and one have a ton of one component uh, revision. So with that design, we ended up uh, it's essentially finding out that there was no difference in any of the outcomes, whether we looked at it from a per protocol analysis or an as treated uh, analysis. And the, the way we kind of, the reason why there's the, the difference there is that unfortunately some of the patients ended up getting a treatment dose, like for instance, uh, one institution, their, uh, their standard was to give two doses. So the patient accidentally got uh, a second dose of IVTXA without any, uh, just because they were kind of, had fallen into their standard pathway. Um, and so we kind of, or, some patients ended up having uh, just getting a single dose and didn't somehow the pharmacy got mixed up because they didn't use the and the topical TXA wasn't administered. So that patient would have been kind of moved over to our uh, single dose IV group. But regardless of how we how you splice the data and look at the patients, they all um, it all demonstrated the same outcome regardless. And you were quite comprehensive in the outcome measures you looked at, weren't you? You looked at you know, change in hemoglobin, calculated blood loss, transfusion rates. There was no difference in any of those things. Am I right? Correct. And I think the the other thing to kind of highlight with this that somebody could kind of say, well, this isn't a, a double blinded study. Um, I think that my my response to that would be that we did a very good job of kind of working with our our medicine colleagues to develop a a strict transfusion protocol that everybody would adhere to for the, kind of the, the more uh, subjective outcome of transfusion. But really our primary outcome that we powered to and everything was the reduction in hemoglobin. And it's hard to argue with something such a, uh, it's a laboratory value. I mean, we can't, I can't sway that value regardless of whether I know what the patient got, so. And as we've already discussed, the use of um, TXA, everyone's using different doses. What made you decide on those four specific regimens? So our study was actually initiated prior to the development and completion of that recent clinical practice guidelines on the primary total joint arthroplasties. But yeah. shortly um, after Dr. Delavalle and I had finished investigating oral versus IV TXA in primaries, and um, the the treatments that we came up with were those that, in our literature review, had shown that there were a handful of RCTs that uh, demonstrated there was potentially uh, improved outcomes in terms of blood loss and transfusion with these other doses. So we, um, there had been a couple studies that had shown double dosing of your IVTXA or um, providing multi, multiple oral doses or even doing your combined IV topical were potentially going for more efficacious than uh, like a single dose of IV TXA. So that was kind of the, the catalyst for, for those. Um, we unfortunately didn't have the, the insight that we have now from the, the much broader, uh, more systematic review of the literature for the clinical practice guidelines. Well, I think you did well to take on a 
multi-arm study like that in so many centres. So I think you've really covered a lot of bases with those options. So as we've already discussed with both yourself and Dr. Della Valley, there is not a lot of data out there in the revision setting. And in fact, I think yours is one of only two prospective randomised trials evaluating TXA in revision total knee replacement. How do your findings compare with the previous retrospective series and also the recent Chinese study that looked at revision TKR? Yeah, so our study is a, is a bit different from those retrospective studies because they had compared a, essentially a control to a treatment, to a TXA treatment group. And in those studies, they investigated either a single dose or a double dose of IV TXA. Um, so for us, we did not include a pure control arm. Um, the kind of the, the thought behind that is there's been some rumblings in the, the literature and people have started to kind of raise the question of uh, when we're looking at transemic acid in total joint arthroplasty, it's such a proven drug that are we, is it unethical to actually withhold a such a, a good drug from patients? So um, there's kind of started to be some mention of us utilizing a pure treatment, uh, pure control group is unethical for, for the patient. So for that reason, we did not actually include a, a pure control group. But those retrospective studies all show that there was um, favor, there was, it was favorable for the, the TXA. Um, I think in terms of the, the recent prospect of RCT, they had investigated a combined IV topical to only a topical TXA. And they actually found that there was a, a synergistic effect that they, between the combined uh, formulations of TXA. And the, when you kind of break down their data and compare their data to our data, we actually had very similar reductions in hemoglobin between our IV uh, and topical combined groups. Um, but we, where we really differed in between those groups was our transfusion rate. So, for instance, our transfusion rate was 2.1% compared to theirs, theirs at 16.7%. So, um, and when we kind of begin to, I think this highlights that, that difference between something being a, a subjective and an objective uh, outcome, and that their transfusion triggers were, were, uh, were far different than ours. So, we had a much lower uh, hemoglobin they had to, our patients had to get to a much lower hemoglobin in order to trigger a transfusion, which is probably answers a lot of why we saw such a big difference between our uh, rates of transfusion. And then um, in, lastly, I think our findings are different, or uh, our findings are similar to that of the clinical practice guidelines, where we found that essentially based upon the dose amount or the number of doses, uh, there is no difference in the, the efficacy of the, the drug, um, whereas they, they actually, they're citing a, a difference between the, the number of doses that you give the patient. Great. No, it's a very clear, clear study with um, clear take-home messages. My question to Dr. Della Valle is, so now we've got this data, how should that influence the practice of our listeners and, and how do you think this will affect the community now that we have this very valuable data? Well, before I forget, I just want to thank, you know, the HIP Society kind of uh, sponsored this study and helped us get organized with it. So many thanks to the HIP Society uh, who organized both the HIP and the knee, the, the knee study. So that was very helpful. And also want to just make sure we recognize 
there were a lot of people who really contributed patients to this study. And, uh, you know, as you pointed out, it's always tough to do a multi-center study and everybody was very gracious in terms of working together to get this all done. So I just want to make sure I don't forget that. I, I think the bottom line is, is that you have to look at your own system and see what's going to work for you. Um, it, it seems to us that you should use, well, A, you should use TXA because it works. Um, but there doesn't seem to be a clear winner in terms of, um, you know, giving more of it seems to improve the outcomes. So, you know, kind of our take home is use the lowest dose um, that's going to be most cost effective in your health system. So in our health system, um, oral TXA is, is very inexpensive. So that's what we use. Um, but, you know, in another system, IV might be cheaper or topical might be cheaper. I mean, those are basically the same thing. But, you know, use the lowest dose um, that works. Um, I think that's our take home. Great. Well, I'm afraid we are going to have to stop there because we're running out of time. But I'd encourage everyone who hasn't had a chance to read that article to, to download it and read it because it's very interesting, not only from a methodological point of view, the setting up the RCT in this complex setting, but also just has a very clear, important message. Thank you, Ian, and uh, thank you so much to, to you all for what's been a really excellent and informative discussion. Uh, and congratulations particularly to uh, Dr. Delavalle and Dr. Fling on a, a really great study and, and clearly an invaluable addition to, to the current literature. To our listeners, we do hope you've enjoyed joining us and we encourage you to share your thoughts and comments through Twitter, Facebook and the like. And feel free to post or tweet about anything we have discussed here today. And thanks again for listening. <laughs>